0: get to the end of the chapter there's calamity and there's heartache you find this in chapter number 37 where joseph is favored and he is loved and he is given this psychedelic coat and these dreams from god and then his dysfunctional family turns on him and sells him like cattle to these passing slave merchants You find this in chapter number 39. We looked at last week where Joseph is promoted and he's blessed, but then there's this trumped-up accusation of rape that comes his way from this conniving and immoral woman, and it lands him in prison, although he's innocent. Now we're going to look at chapter number 40, which I have entitled, Thanks for Destroying My Plans. Let's read chapter number 40 together. It's, uh, it's about 20 verses, and let's try to understand what's happening in this chapter. Super unique and, uh, and love what is here in this text. It says in verse number 1 of chapter 40, It came to pass after these things, so this is after Joseph has been put in prison and he's been given charge of the prison, that the butler, the king of Egypt, and the lord, the king of Egypt. and Pharaoh was wroth against his two officers, against the chief of the butlers and against the chief of the bakers. And he put them in the ward, in the house of the captain of the guard, into the prison, the place where Joseph was bound. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them, and they continued a season in the ward. So Joseph gets two new fellow inmates to look over the butler and the baker. Verse number five tells us, They dreamed a dream, both of them. Each man his dream in one night, each man according to the interpretation of his dream, the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, which were bound in the prison. And Joseph came in unto them in the morning, and he looked upon them, and behold, they were sad. And he asked Pharaoh's officers that were with him in the ward of the Lord's house, saying, Wherefore look ye so sadly today? So Joseph comes in and sees that like their countenance is different after they've both had these, these dreams and he doesn't know they had a dream. He's just like, God, what's up? Why are you so sad? And they say, because we're in prison. No, they, they say to him, actually, verse number 8, we've dreamed a dream and there's no interpreter of it. And Joseph said unto them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me them, I pray you. So they said, man, we, we dream these dreams and we don't know what they mean. Like, this wasn't just an ordinary dream, apparently. Like, they're, they're sticking with us. It was heavy. It was, it was vivid. It was, and, and, and it's bothering us. We don't know what they mean. And Joseph says, I happen to know somebody who knows all about your dreams. Uh, It's God, and maybe we should ask him about it. So verse 9, the chief butler told his dream to Joseph, said unto him, In my dream, behold, a vine was before me. And in the vine were three branches, and it was as though it budded, and the blossoms shot forth, and clusters therefore brought forth uh, ripe grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I gave the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said unto him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. Yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thine head and restore thee unto thy place. And thou shalt deliver Pharaoh's cup into his hand after the former manner when thou wast his butler. So he says, okay, here's what it is. Three days, you're going to be restored. You're going to get your job back. You're not going to be in prison anymore. Life's going to go back to the way it was. And then there's this, verses 14 and 15, I think maybe the key to the entire chapter and so unique in the, in the Joseph story because chapter after chapter, these travesties seem to befall him and you never really get to see his reaction. You never get to see him voice his opinion or how he feels or what's going through his head in the moment, but you do hear, verse 14. But think on me when it shall be well with thee, And show kindness, I pray thee, unto me, and make mention of me to Pharaoh, and bring me out of this house. For I indeed was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also have I done nothing that should put me into the dungeon. So here, potentially the first time since Joseph has been in prison, he sees a way out. And he says to the butler, man, you know me, and you're going to be out of here soon So go to bat for me. Be a champion of justice for me. Don't forget me. Be my advocate. You can see the wheels turning in Joseph's mind. You can see the plan forming. You can see the hope being birthed. That it's finally, I I can envision a way that the dominoes could fall in such a way that that I can be out of this prison. So man, don't forget me, okay? like, Like, tell Pharaoh about me. Get me out of here. Verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I was also in my dream, and uh, I'll tell you about it. I had three white baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there was all manner of baked meats for Pharaoh, and the birds did eat them out of the basket upon my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation thereof. The three baskets are three days. And you know, the baker's like, yeah, okay, good, good. Yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thy head, yeah, good, from off thee, and shall hang thee on a tree, and the bird shall eat thy flesh from off thee. Like, can you imagine being this guy? Not only do you, like, he was sad because of his dream, right? He has, like, this Alfred Hitchcock sort of bird dream that's troubling him. So so that's pain enough, but then he's told, like, you are formally on death row, okay? If you've ever had mom or dad say, when we get home, you're in trouble, and you have to wait that 30 minutes, Imagine three days and, and you know like it's over, like I'm going to die. But, but listen to this. It came to pass the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday. If you've ever wondered what a Pharaoh did on his, on his birthday, like, here you go. Then he made a feast unto all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. So he kind of brings them out, and he restores the chief butler into his butlership again and gave the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And he the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. So what did Pharaohs do on their birthday? Have a feast, give pardons, give death sentences, apparently. That, that's, that's what they do. But verse 23, Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forget him. Chapter 41, verse 1, And it came to pass at the end of two full years. Can you imagine being Joseph in this moment, where you feel like, I finally have a get-out-of-jail-free card in this butler. Yet day after day after day, no news, nothing changes, just this monotonous, slow-grinding, ever-to-be-repeated day. And the plan never materializes. So here's this pattern in Joseph's life. There's chapter number 37, this this young boy who has dreams, but they're hijacked by his brothers who sell him into slavery. Chapter 39, Joseph's life is taken completely off script and he's thrown into prison. Chapter 40, Joseph has a plan to get out of prison, but it's dashed into pieces. And two years later, he's still there. And you're left kind of wondering in this low moment, like God How could you do this, God? Why would you do this? Or better yet, God, how can I be thankful in moments like these when you hijack my dreams or you take my life off script or you dash my plan into pieces? How could I ever be thankful for something like that? And I cannot this morning tell you exactly why God would destroy your plans, but I can suggest a few biblical reasons as to why he may be doing that if he's doing that in your life this morning. Reason number one, and I only have two, is that sometimes God destroys our plans because it reforms our character. This is really the essence of what Jesus taught in John chapter number 15 when he said that the disciples of Jesus were almost like these vines, that God the gardener would come and would prune, that God in his wisdom would cut and remove and prune and the knife would fall on the branches. And Jesus says that that will happen so that a crop of character change would be produced in the disciples. This is something that Job attested to in Job chapter number 23 when he said that the Lord knows the way that he takes and that when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And Job mentions the refiner's fire that God will oftentimes take these situations and he will burn the dross off of our lives that he will that he will try to produce a purity of character inside of us because of of what he puts us through that oftentimes god wants you to stop being a selfish person and become generous or stop being a worrier and become a rock or stop being pessimistic but yet be joyful or stop being frantic but have peace in your soul or or stop being someone who's eaten up with lust but has self-control and can bridle yourself and how do you get to that deep down character change sometimes you're forged by fire sometimes god destroys your plans sometimes he shapes and molds you because he loves you in those ways this happened kind of in the inverse with Old Testament Israel and is attested to in Psalm chapter number 106 where it says that Israel soon forgot the works of God. They forgot his works and they waited not for his counsel. They didn't care about what God wanted. They didn't care about what, what God's plans were, but they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and they tempted God in the, de- in the desert. And so God gave them their request and sent leanness into their soul. That what God said is, you don't want my counsel, you don't want my way, you want it your way, you want it to be your plans, fine, have your plans, but along with it, see if on the inside you don't shrivel up. See if leanness of soul doesn't enter into you. And I would suggest that the opposite of this is often sometimes true, where God says, no, my counsel, not your way, I'm not giving you your plans, so that it's not leanness of soul, but so that you can have health in your soul that I will take your plans and say, no, veto, this is my plan. I'm giving you something different so that you can actually have health internally. There are so many scenarios that come our way in life that we we don't wish they would have come. It feels like our dreams are hijacked. It feels like God just shreds our plans to pieces. And you can scratch your head or you can shake your fist and you can wonder what's going on. But oftentimes it's there to produce character change. That the remedy for your arrogance may be you losing your great job because you're so puffed up, because you have so much money and you need to experience what it's like to work just as hard but have less. Perhaps you need to learn what it's like to to love the unlovely and to have that character change produced so God gives you people in your life that are difficult to deal with and are crazy family. Perhaps there's a situation that's causing you a ton of anxiety and that's meant to teach you how peaceless you are. Perhaps the past six months are meant to teach you how how peaceless or or fearful or, or how much you need to depend upon the Lord. Maybe God gives you a healthy client so that you can't be a workaholic anymore. And you have to be present, and you have to be around your kids or your spouse a little bit more. I don't know all the reasons, but I do know this much as as a pastor. I know that when you demand a reason, or or you think that God is tame, or that he's on your leash, or that he's domesticated, and that he has to follow your plans, that oftentimes he will take your plans, and he will shred them to pieces to teach you something that you need to learn, to develop character inside of you, and to teach you that you just need to trust him for who he is, not for what he does. I've seen this happen in people over and over and over, year after year. I see this happen in you and in in fellow Christians where God takes your life in ways that you never would have imagined and he teaches you this invaluable lesson that you need to love him and trust him not because of what he does for you because he makes the way easy for you because he just constantly gives you your wishes and, he, and he's you know, your Santa Claus that just you know, puts whatever you want under the Christmas tree but that he does that and he takes your life off script so that you can learn to love him and trust him just for who he is. That's, a, that's an invaluable lesson to learn. That, hey, God, I, I think I've been just loving you because of what you bring to the table. And now that you've changed what you're bringing to the table, I'm struggling to love you. So I, I, I don't think I really love you the way that I should. I think I've used this illustration before. If I have, forgive me. I'm young, limited material. So, you know, it comes back out. But, but it's, a, it's a potent example. If, if you are in love with someone and you're engaged to someone and you're a week away from marriage. And let's say for sake of illustration, you have a lot of money. And you lose all that money in the stock market a week before your wedding. And your spouse-to-be comes to you and says, hey, you know what, this has been rough. Uh, you know, I, I know you could use my comfort right now, but, but why don't we just put off the wedding? You say, no, 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 I've already bought the venue. We already have the dress. We already have everything. Like, it's fine. Like, we're not going to be able to live in that house. It's going to be you know, different, but, it, but it's, it's fine. We'll make do, let's get married. And they say, no, 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 let, let, let's put it off. And you begin to realize they don't really love you for you, they love you for your money, that in essence they're a gold digger, that, that it, it never clicked previously, but you begin to realize that they love you for what you bring to the table, you would be outraged, right? And rightfully so. It would be a blow to your humanity that, that, it, that it is significant. You, you would be offended, you would be hurt if you realized you don't love me for me, you only love me for what I give to you. And when God comes along in life and he begins to alter the plans or shred the plans and you begin to to tell God, you know what, that's not the plan. I can't believe you would. How dare you? You know, I'm mad at you. I'm angry at you. I'm bitter at you. Then it begins to reveal that you didn't love God for who he was. You didn't trust God for who he was. You loved and trusted God for what he brought to the table. You, You have a gold digger relationship with God. That yeah, we're we're all good and everything's honky-dory as long as you follow my plan. And God doesn't work that way, and oftentimes He will He will really mess things up just to teach you that lesson, to show you that that your love is completely off-kilter. Here's the point: God will do what it takes to, to make character change inside of you and to eliminate those defects. Even if it's destroying those plans and we as Christians should be willing to step back and say, Lord, I, I don't really like it and it, it hurts and it's not what I would have wished for myself, but it was helpful for me in the long run. It's sort of this ouch that helps moment where it's, it's like, God, hey, it's painful, but I appreciate it. Thank you for wanting to change me and make you more into your image. But it's not always just to reform our character. I would suggest to you biblically that oftentimes God will destroy your plans just to reveal our forgetfulness. This is is so potent in James chapter number four where James addresses this directly and he says sometimes God destroys your plans because they are exactly that. They're your plans. You may have pseudo-consulted him You may have cued him in at one point in time when when you, you know, prayed once. But they're not not really his plans when it's all said and done. I want you to look at James chapter 4. We're going to read five verses together and try to understand a a passage of Scripture that has a lot of misunderstanding, frankly. Look at James 4, chapter number 13. If you don't have it in front of you, we'll put it on the screen for you. But it says, go to now. Ye that say, and here's what what we say often. Today or tomorrow, we're going to go in such and such a city. We're going to continue there a year, buy and sell and get gain. All right, so we say we're going to go do this. We're going to go there. We're going to, you know, make some money. Verse 14, whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanishes away. Raise your hand if you ever heard that verse quoted before. Life's a vapor, is but a vapor appears, right? That's a famous verse. Verse 15. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live, or do this, or do that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings, and all such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. How many of you heard that verse before? Okay, Both those are, are, are famous verses, but those all fit together in uniform. James is talking about one of the most normal things that we do in life. We say, tomorrow, I'm going to go do this or that. This year, I'll go do this. And, and we schedule. We plan. And he, and he lays out in verse number 13, today or tomorrow, hey, that's a time. We're going to go into such a city, that's a place, and we're going to continue there a year, that's a time, and we're going to sell and get gain. That's, that's a goal, right? A time, a place, a goal. So we would say it maybe this way. I'm going to go to school for three years, and then I'm going to have my nursing degree, and then I'm going to go start here. Or um, I'd like to be married by such and such an age, or I'd like to have this many kids, or I'd like to have, you know, a kid by the time I'm age, or whatever. I'd like to start a business, and I'm hoping that I can break even the first year, and then I I hope that I can turn uh, a little bit of a profit the second year. Those sorts of things, right? We do this all the time. We try to exert some measure of control over our circumstances, so we plan, is James saying, don't do that? Don't plan? No. Verse 13, what's wrong, he says, that you say, we will, we shall. Verse 15, he gives us a, a bit more, but he allows us to say, we shall. It's in verse 15, we shall. He doesn't say you can't do that, but what he does say is that there, there is a huge difference between how we normally plan and prepare and how we should plan and prepare. That how we normally plan and prepare and schedule and work is fundamentally wicked and arrogant and boastful, is what James says. Fundamentally, that's how it is. That's why he says in verse number 17, and this is not a a verse that's disconnected from the whole, it's part of it. It starts with, therefore... So based on what I just told you, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. This is wicked. This is wrong. This is evil. And what he's saying is you are very, very capable in your planning and preparing and the plans that you put forth in life. You are very capable of committing a sin of omission. Not a sin of commission where you willfully choose to do something, but a sin of omission that if you just go with the flow. If you just go about it how it naturally comes to you, you don't have to choose to do anything. You just have to to go through life the way most people go through life, planning and preparing. You will actually sin in this regard. What is this sin? What are you talking about, James? It's where you go through life and you plan, you work, you schedule, you set goals, you make decisions, you conduct relationships, and you forget God. That's what he's saying that you go about your day-to-day and you commit perhaps one of the most pathological and ruinous sins that is in Christianity or in my life or your life, a sin would, that most of us have never confessed is that we live and we plan and we work and we operate without a continual relentless connection to God mentally and emotionally, recognizing that God is, You are you, and I am me, and what is my life? It is a vapor. Everything is dependent upon you. Who am I to even try to, I'll try to plan, but this is all up to you. He says, we do this often. He says, you can't just say, tomorrow I will. Here's my plans. He says, it's wicked. He says, "You, you have to say God willing, meaning you give God veto power and access to your life. And if you don't, James says, it's destructive. You say, what's so bad about this? My plans, trying to work the plans. What's so bad about that? I'll put it this way. How do you like to be forgotten? Okay? How do you like to be forgotten? How do you like it when someone who's supposed to love you forgets you? Some of you have, have been through a parent or grandparent suffering from Alzheimer's and you have gone through the deeply painful process of someone that you love and loves you, but they start to forget you. And it is tough. That hurts. When someone owes you and they forget you, it ticks us off. Don't you know that you owe me money or you owe me a debt of gratitude? Couldn't you at least just say a thank you or write a note or or something like that? It's rude to be ignored. You don't like it. You think God likes it anymore when we forget him, when we just go about our day-to-day, when we take our plans and and we just, you know, go about our life and, and we don't think about him or we only think about him on Sunday morning or we only think about him on Sunday morning and for the 30 minutes that we have our devotions and that's it? This is why God was so ticked with Old Testament Israel. Many reasons he was, but one of them, according to Jeremiah, is that they forgot him. And Jeremiah steps into the scene and he says, can a maid forget her ornaments can a bride forget her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Where God says, you forgot me. Now, Jeremiah uses the illustration of a bride. Now, I've done a few weddings in my life. I have never been to a wedding where the bride walked down the aisle and said, oh, snaps, I forgot to put my makeup on. Like, I've never, I've never had it happen. I don't think I ever will, right? Right? She doesn't forget her ornaments. She doesn't forget her dress that day. I've I've never had a bride, you know, show up in in basketball shorts. It, It doesn't happen. Why? Because that's important to her on that day. It is important to her that she looks as presentable and beautiful as is humanly possible on that day. And what God is saying is, you remember the things that are important to you, don't you? And you've forgotten me. So apparently I'm not important. That's what he says. That's what James is saying. That you go about your plans that are your plans and forget God in them. And what you're communicating to God is that he's not important. And James says it is is evil to do this. It is wrong. It is inappropriate. It is out of touch with reality. But then he also says it's boastful. It is arrogant and it is proud. Verse 16, he says, But now ye rejoice in your boastings. What are my boastings? My boastings that today or tomorrow I'm going to go there and I'm going to do this and then I'm going to make money. Then those are my boastings. You rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. What he's saying is when you forget God, you assume God's place. You are acting like you're God, you have an extreme lack of humility. And you're acting like, like you're in control. You're acting like you're the master of your own fate. You're acting like like your plans, you know, can, can predict the, the outcome. That if I do one, two, three, then four, five, six will happen all the time. And he says, you're, you're acting as though you're God. No, you're not. So how do we avoid this? Why does God sometimes destroy our plans to help us remember Him, to help us not forget Him? And verse 15 tells us what to do. It doesn't say you can't plan. It doesn't say we shall do this or we shall do that. That's inherently wrong. It says you should include if the Lord will. That in all of our plans, we include if the Lord will. So let's understand this. Is James saying that you just sprinkle your verbiage with, with, you know, piety? Well, you know, See you next week, Lord willing. Hey, we're going to pray in just a minute. Casey's going to sing, Lord willing. And then we'll be in Genesis chapter 40, Lord willing. And then we'll dismiss you in a couple of minutes, Lord willing. Is that what he's saying? Just, just slap, Lord willing, on everything. And then you've done it. No. Nor is he saying that you go consult God with your plans and then say, well, this is what God wants. This is so pervasive in Christianity, especially in pastors who act like they're Moses that went up the mountain, met with God, God wrote the plan on tablets of stone, and then they bring it back down the mountain to the people and say, "Here's what it is. You know, here's exactly what God wants. I'm certain of it. Here's here's a 3-year plan." We just this this, you know, early this year, went through some planning and preparing and vision casting for our future, but tried to do our best to live this principle out and say, "Look, I have prayed, <laughs> talk to the Lord, try to consult him, you know, get his input as much as humanly possible, but I'm not Moses. He didn't write it on a tablet for me. So We've talked as a leadership team, as a pastoral team, as a deacon team, but we're not perfect either. We may not have seen everything, so why don't you come give us your input? Come to a focus group. Why why don't you tell us maybe what we're missing or what we need to alter? We're, We're not saying that this is exactly how it has to go, but this is kind of what we're planning and preparing for. And all those meetings, try to do our best at the beginning, at the end of them to pray and say, Lord, what do you want? Lead us. And to be frank, this year has been nothing like the plan. It was shredded like Eight months ago, it was gone. It's, it, I mean, it's been so off script, but that's okay. That's okay. Like God has that prerogative; He gets that right. It's not my job to say this is what the Lord wants. I'm one hundred percent certain on. I'm a human. That's what James is saying. Your life's a vapor. What do you know? Who are you? There are certain things I know are the will of God. To love people, to love Him, to share the gospel. Yeah, I can say that with clarity because His Word tells me that. But but when it comes to our plans, we're finite. We don't know it all. We can't do it all. So when you, and this is a danger, when you say, okay, yeah, I, I want to consult the Lord on my plan, so hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to get married. The Lord showed me that this is, this is the one for me and, and for sure in and, and one year we will get married. How are people supposed to argue with that, Right? You can't just sprinkle the Lord over everything because it it takes away any sort of accountability. It takes away any sort of person wanting to speak into your life because who am I to say? Apparently, God spoke to you. James isn't saying do that. Actually, that's the opposite of what he's saying. He's saying you're a vapor. You don't know. You shouldn't boast. You shouldn't be so, so proud and arrogant. God's the one who's actually in control. So why don't you admit it? Why do you admit that so much of your life is not dependent upon anything you could possibly do? So many of us have very little control over whether we get in a car accident or not on the way home. There's a ton of that that's outside of your control. Whether you get cancer this year or not. Whether the same family at the holiday table this year is the same family next year. You you can't control so much of that. You you the puppet master on on the economy of our country? You're not doesn't mean we shouldn't plan, we shouldn't work, but we have to admit that we don't have control, that we're not God. It's prideful to act like we are. So what James is saying is, it's fine to say I'd like to get into the school. It's fine to say that I'd like to marry this man or I'd like to have a kid by age 27 or I want to start the business. I'd like for that to happen. I'm praying for that to happen. I'm working towards that. I've set a goal, but I don't know. I, I don't know. In terms of the cosmos... I am a child. What do I really know? God is in control of that, and I'm willing to trust God's plans more than I'm willing to trust my plans, and I'm willing to give him veto power over everything in my life. Now you're remembering the Lord. Now you are, if the Lord wills. One more note on this. James mentions life's a vapor. But then he he puts this little phrase in, in verse number 15. I want you to read it with me. Verse 13 talks about tomorrow, I'll go here, I'll do this, I'll say that, I'll, I'll, you know, make money. Verse 15, we're allowed to say, you know, we shall do this or that, but he includes this phrase. You ought to say if the Lord will, here it is, we shall live and do this or that. That wasn't in 13. What James is trying to draw our attention to is the reality of what he had just said in verse 14, that life is a vapor. And that ultimately, the very fact that you're sitting here today, that there is breath in your lungs, that your heart is beating, is the grace of God. The very reality that you can communicate, that you can have a Thanksgiving meal, that you can put food in your mouth this week, that all of that is the grace of God, that all of life is upheld by His hand, that every second of every day, He sustains us, and He is in control, and He is big, and He is strong, that that's there, and, and just, just living today is His will or not. So we look at our life, and we say, as Christians, this is all of grace, my health, my money, my, my salvation, my plans, all of it is of grace. God, if you gave me what I deserved, I'd be wiped out. So, Lord, I thank you and I trust you. And, Lord, you remember me today. You're, you haven't forgot to uphold me and you haven't forgot to keep me in the right hand of your power. You, you haven't lost my salvation today. You've remembered me, so, God, I will remember you. That's what he's saying. But oftentimes, I'm telling you, I can't say for sure this is why God will destroy your plans, but oftentimes he will destroy our plans to teach us that we just don't do life this way. That we go through it forgetting him and communicating to him that he's trivial and that he's unimportant. And there's a blessed truth in Isaiah, and the truth is that God will never forget us. We know as Christians that this is made possible, Because Jesus was forgotten for us. Right on the cross, he was forsaken for us. He was forgotten for us. And in Isaiah, the Lord communicates and says, I will never forget you. I will engrave you upon the palm of my hands. There's there's a song that we sing here often that is super doctrinally rich. And and the song says, uh, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue will bid me thence depart. What that song is communicating is God will never forget me. I am always his child, and I would submit to you this Thanksgiving week that our heart should be, Lord, thank you for never forgetting me, even though sometimes I forget you. If we're honest, we do. Lord, sometimes I commit, or I don't commit, but I, I omit, and that, that sin enters my life, and I don't want to walk through life planning, scheduling, working without you. I would submit to you that this Thanksgiving week we should be able to say, God, thank you for changing my plans because in changing my plans, you've changed me. You've given me not what I wanted, but what I needed. And to have the humble disposition that a Christian should have to say, Lord, the plans are yours. The cosmos is yours you want to rip it up and destroy it and hijack my dreams and take it off script? I'm not asking for it. But you're God, it's okay. I hope that that can be our disposition and that we can learn these valuable lessons from the life of Joseph. Bow your head with me. I want you, where you sit this morning, to talk to the Lord. And if you're a Christian, I want you to do business with him. I want you to perhaps,